welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. All right, so I'd just like to welcome Professor Kokila Laku, who's with us today from Oxford in the UK. Um, Kokila is the clinical head of pediatric surgery in Oxford. Um, although Kokila works in the UK, she's got very strong ties with Africa, uh, including South Africa, Tanzania, and uh, Malawi. Um, and she's got quite a passion for promoting care for children worldwide. So, Kokila, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to join us. You're most welcome. Um, Kokila, today we're going to chat about uh, calothorax or calothoraces. Um, maybe you can just kick off by just defining for us what a calothorax is. Okay, so from a starting point, it's uh, in a lymphatic fluid or lymphatic effusion in the chest, and that's why chylo, meaning lymphatic, thorax meaning the chest. And uh, when, you, when you're studying such a subject or when you have a patient with chylothorax, the question you want to ask yourself is that, is this congenital or is this acquired? Uh, congenital chylothoraces have associated with a lot of syndromes. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and if it's an acquired one, it's usually traumatic. Traumatic meaning a iatrogenic injury during thoracic or cardiac surgery or during trauma. And the recovery phase or the management of the two are very similar, but the one has a very good and quick, better outcome, which is the acquired one. Okay. Whereas, whereas the congenital ones uh, can be quite uh, trying due to the fact that they have other associated abnormalities. And sometimes you're actually prognosticating whether this child's management should continue or not due to quality of life for these babies. Yeah, so I suppose it's one of the many problems. I suppose you have to tie it all together and decide what's the best way for the, for the child and for the family, yeah. Um, Kokila, are there any sort of specific, you know, obviously the congenital ones, as you say, the syndromes are associated with, but the acquired ones, I mean, do we find any predisposing factors? I mean, apart from sort of cardiac surgery and those things, are there any patients that are more prone to it than others? No, I think it, it's mainly, uh, you know, for during cardiac surgery more so than when we're doing our tracheoesophageal fistulas. Yeah. And uh, I, I haven't found an uh, inclination for a group of patients except that they need in cardiac surgery. Okay. Now, I see some papers say that males are more predisposed than females, but you guys haven't really seen that in your experience. Yeah. Uh, again, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, in the, in the literature, they said there's a gender preference towards male. But if you look at it, um, generally in our figures, you know, we haven't found that difference. Yeah, and then, and in terms of the side that they develop the calothorax, I mean, is it generally depend upon the side of the surgery, or is it uh, yeah, really depending upon where the injury occurs? So most of the time you have, uh, like, right-sided surgery. So we've been seeing them a lot on the right side. Uh, and, and it's surgery dependent. So cardiac surgery could be, uh, you know, it's mainly median stenotomies. 
Yeah. So it could be on the side. So, you know, for cardiac surgery, there's no preferences. Uh, when we look at uh, pediatric surgical thoracic lesions, many tend to be on the right side, and, and that's where we've found. But uh, if, if I have to give you an answer, I would say it does, uh, chylothorax doesn't prefer side. It has no side preferences. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, so what are some of the side effects? What are some of the complications of having a chyle leak? Okay. So firstly, when, when you do have uh, the, the diagnostic method is that the child's having respiratory distress uh, or the ventilatory requirements are going up, uh, chest x-ray is done, and there's a wipeout on one side. Okay. And the question is that what is this? Is this a severe pneumonia? Is this a... a due to a leak from what you've done, uh, is it chyle? And the diagnostic methodology is um, you do a pleural tap right. and then you send it off for diagnosis. And once the pleural tap comes back, it usually will have lymphatic cells in it and that makes your diagnosis. So, um, you, so, you, so just to go on to that, so I mean you mainly using the presence of high lymphocytes in the fluid as opposed to uh, triglycerides and those things in the fluid? Because most people, have, as you said, probably moved away from that biochemical analysis rather than looking at the cell analysis. Yeah, we've still been a bit uh, traditional. You look for, you know, and the other one, the other way of distinguishing which is which is that if the baby is null by mouth, it should be kind of a clear tap. But if the the baby is fed, it's milky. So if it's milky, it's quite clear that this is a chyle. Yeah. Uh, in, in a less acute baby, ex- unless your soft gel anastomosis has leaked and you've got milk in the chest. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, you know, I mean, you have to take that into account as well. So then you're looking at, is this milk or is this chyle? So again, you'll send it off for a test. Yeah. Uh, what are you using, Andrew, at, at your end for well, diagnostic tests? Well, we've been mainly using biochemistry, um, yes. but you know, after doing some more reading, I mean, the, the trick is to try and convince our labs to do unusual tests on abnormal sort of fluid types. So, for example, we struggled to get them to do a bilirubin on an acidic tap, um, the same way we struggled to get cell counts on thoracic taps. But I, so we mainly have been using biochemistry. Um, but I, you know, I think we'll probably try and push them for lymphocyte counts now because it's probably more an accurate, more of an accurate uh, picture. Because the triglycerides and everything, you're right, are, are often more dependent upon what the child's been feeding and those things, and it's a little bit harder to make the diagnosis, you know, depending upon what's going into the child versus what comes out. Whereas the lymphocytes are always high, um, or the predominant cell type. Yeah. You don't get specificity with your biochemical test, whereas with the lymphocyte, you, you get an accurate outcome that, yes, you've got lymph uh, in, in, in your uh, effusion. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just going back to the reading, you know, where we said, you know, as I said, we found it more on the right side, but there is literature out there that, it, you know, there is equal amount on the left side as well. And again, bringing that subject up, it's, very much depends on where you've done the surgery and which cavity you've accessed. Yeah, as you say, I suppose it, in reality it, it's you know it's semantics. It's really a clinical picture, and that's what's important. Um, and obviously, just to be aware that you can get it both sides as well. 
Um, so don't yeah, don't be put off by the fact that you might have a bilateral effusion and think it can't be a chylus to thorax because it obviously can be. Yeah. Um, so you asked me about what are the side effects of a chyle leak. Yes. Yeah. Why why are we worried about these patients? Yeah. So when this happens, uh, you've got a problem. So you need to tackle the problem. So firstly, they'll have respiratory insufficiency that will alert you to do your chest X-ray and then uh, further investigate. And when you lose chyle, you also use nutritional depletion. So the child becomes nutritionally depleted. Mm. Uh, and, you know, your intestinal fat and lymphocytes are lost. So that, again, has a nutritional impact. And then the child becomes dehydrated, there's metabolic changes, and then immune deficiency takes place. So with an abnormality in the chest cavity, you've got to deal with it. Yeah. I must say, one of the interesting things that I was reading about it is that, you know, although these patients become immunodeficient and they're prone to developing sepsis, um, there's almost no recorded um, incidence of local sepsis within the hemithorax. So they don't develop an empyema because of the high lymphocyte count there, but, sep but systemically they are very prone to infections. You're absolutely right. It's a systemic sepsis rather than the specific localized sepsis, mm -hmm. uh, which is related to the immunodeficiency. Yeah, yeah. So, and can I ask just, I mean, just broadly speaking, what's your general sort of treatment approach to these patients with a chylothorax? Okay. So what we do is once we've established that this is chylothorax, the aim is conservative management, and I would say conservative, 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 unless uh, you have refractory leaks. So the conservative management would be to put in an inter, uh, intercostal drain to release the uh, pressure from the chest. We put the patient null by mouth, start them on parental nutrition. Uh, so that you can dry the leak out, and about 90% of the patients will be fine with that. Okay. Now, in countries where you don't have TPN, or uh, after a week, we would change them to a medium-chain triglyceride diet, and that's quite helpful. Mm -hmm. And in a neonate, kind of my, uh, it's about a month, three weeks to a month of um Conservative treatment in order to six weeks to two months of conservative treatment, and then failing that, uh, it becomes refractory. But before that, I do try somatostatin analogs. Okay. So say after, so once I start my treatment by keeping the patient starved, icy drainage, uh, TPN or MCT diet, and after two weeks, I don't notice a change or the change is very slow then I would add a somatostatin analog, which works in the way that it just dries up secretions. Okay. And that has been quite successful in, in most patients. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know it's obviously it works better in young neonates to, compared to the older kids. Um, what happens if, you, if the conservative treatment fails? I mean, unfortunately, it's relatively rare. But what, what do you do after that if, if you still fail in conservative management? 
So if the conservative management fails, then I would uh, go with either thoracoscopy or thoracotomy and identify the leak. So if it's traumatic, you might be able to identify the leak. And one of the cues of helping you identify it is that give the patient like a cream diet mm. a few hours before the surgery. I mean, <laughs> a limited on so they don't aspirate. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so if you give them a, a high fatty diet, you'll be able to identify the leak. In my experience, you know, in the traumatic ones, the leaks can be identified, and usually if it's a one area, you can just put a stitch on there. Okay. Some colleagues will use uh, glue, some will use, uh, and in the literature, people have talked about success with glue or success with coagulation with uh, a uh, diathermic device. Yeah, yeah. If you find that the leak is unidentified, and this you find mainly in congenital, where it's like a water can, and you just find that the medial aspect of the chest cavity is just leaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a neonate, it's, it's, quite, uh, it's not a very difficult procedure, but you consider doing a pleurodesis. So where you find high-volume leak, you can apply some diathermy, but what I do is I remove the pleura, cause like a pleurodesis, okay. and then inject a bit of the patient's blood, because the blood itself is a pleurodesing. So you put a needle into the intercostal vein and just take a little bit of blood and kind of spray it across where you suspect the lymphatic channels are. So using a pleurodesing technique, and that has worked. Uh, especially in neonates, it's been very, very successful. And if that fails, then there is consideration for a shunt. So in my experience, I've managed, I've had, I was lucky, I suppose, that both using conservative or surgical approach has worked. But I've had a referral of a patient where both the techniques didn't work. And then I considered putting in a shunt. And it was only once in my career that I've used a shunt. Uh, and, you know, there are different shunts available on the market. And if you are used to putting uh, central lines, uh, you know, either percutaneously or open through the internal jugular vein, yeah. then the shunts are not difficult to do. Or if you're used to putting VP shunts, so basically the shunt is a one-way valve where you put one end into the chest like a chest drain and the other end into the internal jugular vein. And okay. then to the atrium and um, it works very very well when right. you have refractory chylothoraces. Okay, alright. Kokila, um, I just want to go back uh, just to two things just just for a bit of expansion. So, I mean, you were talking about somatostatin analogs and we obviously use them relatively frequently um, but there are some important side effects that we need to be aware of in terms of somatostatin uh, maybe you can just elaborate on what some of these are and what we should look out for and when we treat these patients. So, um, if we take somatostatin as, as a drug, hyperglycemia, hypothyroidism, uh, liver and kidney damage, um, pulmonary hypertension, bloating, and then there's, there's the concept of necrotizing enterocolitis. So, if I go through all of them, if you're using them short term, then it's not a very dangerous drug because side effects are far and few between. Mm-hmm. But if you have to use them for a month or sometimes longer than a month, 
then you need to keep an eye on the two main things, which is hyperglycemia and hypothyroidism. So you check those biochemically. And it's, it's important to keep a weekly uh, eye on the liver function test and your use and ease, just to make sure that your kidneys and your liver is not failing. A month's treatment, I haven't seen these side effects because I've not used them for longer than a month. But having been described in the literature, there was an issue of a pulmonary hypertension. And my view is, was that the pulmonary hypertension due to the drug or was it due to the effect of the pylothorax? Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. And I think, in, in my mind, necrotizing enterocolitis, I think, is, is a red herring because it might have been just a very ill child with needing input from a hemodynamic instability. And you know when NEC happens. It happens when the babies are very vulnerable, they need blood that needs to rush to the brain, the heart, the kidneys, and the bowel suffers. Yeah. So I think it's that phenomena rather than the drug. And I suppose also them being immunosuppressed as well predisposes them to NEC, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is that you mentioned using blood for pleurodesis. Um, are there any other agents that people are using routinely apart from blood? Yes, so our adult surgeons use talc, talcum powder. Talc works very well. I think there's a resistance in children because of a reaction. Okay. Uh, but it is a very good product to use. The only problem is if you're going to use it percutaneously or through a drain, it blocks. So if you have an open chest, the talcum powder works really well because you can just kind of spray it in the area that you want to. Uh, hypertonic saline, uh, betadine, uh, you know, erythromycin solution, tetracycline is the other one. Those can also be injected through a drain if you want to create a, a chemical pyrodesis uh, percutaneously. I suppose yeah, some of the agents, as you say, are better to be done open and some are obviously better percutaneously. Um, yeah. And I suppose, as you say, some things are also easily available on the table, like the patient's blood, for example, whereas others you may need to make some earlier preparations to make sure that they are, are there for your surgery. Yeah. I mean, betadine is a very good adhesive, and that's why I don't like, you know, bowel washouts of betadine because they cause adhesions. Mm -hmm. So if you use betadine in the chest, you can, but you need to be careful that you don't use a large amount, otherwise you get iodine toxicity. So the safest and the most available is right in front of you. You've opened the chest, uh, you've got the intercostal veins, or you've got your azalgus veins, you know, take a bit of blood from there and just sprinkle it around the area that you want pleurodes. Mm. And I tell you, it works fantastic. Okay, no, that's that's good to good to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, Kokila, can I ask you? Um, you haven't mentioned the potential concept of uh, sort of periaortic ligation of tissue um, at sort of the diaphragmatic hiatus. And I know some people have mentioned doing that for resistant leaks where they can't find the location, sort of one step before doing um, a shunt. Have you ever done that or had any experience with that? Um, or do you tend to just do a pyrodesis and then move on to a shunt as your next step? No, I have done it, and thanks for bringing it up. 
what happens is you know where the thoracic duct is running. Right. So as a surgeon, you're familiar with the anatomy. So if you put a running stitch in that area, you know, you catch it. Mm. You sometimes catch it. And, uh, you know, thoracic surgeons, or as us pediatric surgeons, are familiar with the chest. And sometimes you just see a blob in an area. So if you just put in a blind running stitch, making sure you don't stitch the aorta or make a hole, <laughs> you'd be fine. You'd, yeah. It does. That's another method as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now that's good to just sort of bear in mind as an alternative option. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It, it's a nice area to talk about because it's specific and you can do something about it. Yeah, I think it's something we don't see particularly often, but it's good to have an approach to treating these patients. Um, and as you say, they can get really sick and actually become real problems if you don't try and get on top of it sooner rather than later. Um, Kokila, do you have any sort of take-home messages you want to leave with the guys? Yeah, I think the take-home message is uh, be like prompt with your diagnosis. Because the earlier the diagnosis... The, the more successful your conservative treatment. Mm-hmm. And if conservative treatment fails, if you're doing surgical, you know, try the minimalistic approaches such as, you know, the uh, tying of the duct, pleurodesis, because those work. I mean, shunts are very, very rare, and shunts can be problematic. So I would leave the shunt as the last resort. You know, try all the other tricks that we've talked about, and then... Uh, you know, if if you're not winning, then then you do have something to use, which is the shunt. Yeah. No, perfect. Thank you so much. That's that's very helpful. I'm sure the guys will learn a lot from that. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And you're uh, welcome, Andrew. And take care. You too. We'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together.